starts like this. It says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. The people again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. All through the book of Judges, we have seen this on repeat. This is the seventh time in the book of Judges we've seen this say, again, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It's just the same old story over and over again. Israel rebels. There's actually going to be a little graphic that comes up. This, this cycle that we've seen. Israel rebels. God disciplines them, usually in the form of oppression from some other people group. Then the people of Israel repent, and they call out to the Lord, and then the Lord raises up a deliverer amongst the people of Israel. And what do you know? The cycle starts all over again. It's just wash, rinse, repeat over and over that we've been seeing through the book of Judges. So where are we up to this point in Judges? Well, at the beginning of Judges, if you remember, uh, Joshua had just brought the people of Israel into the promised land, and the people of Israel are supposed to conquer the land of Canaan and, and take over and move into their tribal allotments and move into the land that God promised to them, but they don't. They don't grab hold of the promise of God like they were told to, and instead they begin to form covenants with the current people of the land of Canaan. They just begin to settle in their tribal allotments and just settle amongst the people that are still there. Some of them do conquer their land, but a lot of them don't. They just settle amongst the people that are already there, just disobeying the voice of the Lord. And so at the start of Judges, if you remember, the people are actually doing really good. The people are, um, you know, they're obeying the voice of the Lord. They're serving the Lord. The whole time that Joshua is alive, the whole time that the elders that are with Joshua are alive, um, all the people that had seen the great wonders and promises that God has done for them, the people of Israel are, are following the Lord up until the point that Joshua dies, up until the point that the elders die, and people just begin to forget. It just says in there in, in chapter 2 that they just forget the work of the Lord and they forget what God has done for them. And thus that begins the inaugural wash, rinse, repeat cycle. The people rebel against the Lord they have discipline brought down upon them. They repent. A deliverer is raised up to redeem them. And the cycle just starts all over again. And this is the bulk of the book of Judges that we've been looking at. The, the deliverers. We've been looking at the deliverers that God raises up for the people of Israel. We have 12 judges in the book of Judges that are raised up as leaders. Typically, they're military leaders, but not always. And they get raised up to deliver the people of Israel from the hand of the oppressors. And one of the common themes that we are looking for and expecting, and actually a common theme and expectation of the whole Old Testament, is the need for an ultimate Savior. It's a common theme that runs through the Old Testament. The need for God to once and for all ultimately redeem his people. A need for God to raise up a Redeemer and save his people from the mess that we've gotten ourselves in. And so as we've read through the book of Judges time and time again, uh, the past 11 Judges, we're about to come to the 12th one today, Every time we've gotten to a new judge, there's supposed to be like a little bit of excitement, right? A little bit of wonder of, oh, maybe this is the judge that the Lord is going to raise up. Maybe this is the redeemer that Israel needs, and finally, this is the one we've been hoping for. Is, is this next judge the one redeemer that will succeed in redeeming his people once and for all? Well, so far, the answer has been no. <laughs> so far, throughout the whole Old Testament, God's raised leaders up. And they've done great things for the Lord, but 
then they make a crucial mistake or, or they fall into sin, they turn away from the Lord, or perhaps sometimes the leaders are, are raised up and, and they do great things and our, our hope our hopes start to get our hopes start to get up. We go, oh, this is it. This is the redeemer we're looking for. And then they just die and that's it. And so so far in the book of Judges, we've seen eleven different judges that the Lord has raised up to redeem the people of Israel, and they all end in the same way with their death. And so for the past 12 chapters, we've seen these 11 different judges, and this brings us to our 12th and final judge in the book of Judges. And maybe this is it, friends. Maybe this is the final redeemer we've been looking for through the Old Testament. Let's take a look. Chapter 2, sorry, chapter 13, verse 2. It says, there was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. So here's our intro to the first two people uh, in the account of Judges 13, Manoah and his wife, who, sorry to say, she doesn't have a name. So let's just call her Mrs. Manoah. Hope that doesn't offend anyone out there. We got Manoah and Mrs. Manoah, and they're in the tribe of Dan. And they live in the, the city of Zorah. And so the city of Zorah, for some context, is about 22 kilometers west of Jerusalem. And actually, there's going to be a map that comes up on your screen. Um, there's a little bit of a zoomed out map. So that's just the original tribal allotment, and then it gets zoomed in right away. There you go. That's, if you see up there, orange in the middle left of your screen is the tribe of Dan. And that's about 22, the city of Zorah is about 22 kilometers west of Jerusalem. And if you're on the up and up, you might be thinking to yourself, but Blake, I've been to Israel before, and I know that the tribe of Dan settled up north. What are they doing down here in the middle of Israel? Very good, you Bible scholar, you. You're right. But by the time we get to the end of Judges, we actually see the tribe of Dan does eventually move up north because their original allotment in the Promised Land, it was right here. It was right here on the west side on the Mediterranean Sea. And look who's just south of them are friends of Philistines. And the Philistines are what eventually actually caused the tribe of Dan to move up north because they just kept getting poked and prodded and they were just a general thorn in the side of Dan. And instead of Dan taking hold of their original promised land as given to them by God, they just simply ran away. It isn't that they're unable to take hold of their land. It's just that they choose not to. They choose not to. They had a promise by God and they choose not to take hold of that promise. They simply don't take hold of their land. And so there's the Philistines down there. I don't know if the, I don't know, I can't see much. I'm just looking at a camera right now. But that map will come back up on your screen. The little map will come back on your screen. And you'll see the tribe of Dan is, is uh, right above the Philistines there. You see the Philistines right below Dan? Well, who are the Philistines? Well, the Philistines, they weren't original settlers in the land of Canaan. Um, Historians actually speculate that they settled in the land along the Mediterranean Sea, which we now know as the Gaza Strip, current-day Gaza Strip, around the year 1175 BC, which is only actually about 50 years before Judges 13 here. So they didn't didn't settle here too long ago. And the Philistines, they were a, a seafaring people, uh, they're believed to come across the Mediterranean Sea from the uh, Greek island of Crete. There's some debate, but they know they didn't come from right on the land there. They came across the sea, settled in the Gaza Strip there. And the Philistines, they were very skilled at metalworking. 
they worked in iron. They had strong weaponry. And they were also skilled in political means. So they had formed five strong cities once they landed there. Some you'll probably recognize. They had Ashdod, uh, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and Gath. And so the Philistines came. They settled. They were strong in weaponry. They were strong in political means. And they formed a strong kind of controlled area along the Gaza Strip there. And the Philistines here, friends, get used to hearing about the Philistines because they were serious thorns in the side of the Israelites. All the way up from when they settled, all the way up uh, even through until King Saul, King David even. They actually, remnants of them stayed there all the way up until uh, the civilization of Babylon came and just raised the whole land. If you remember, just to jog your memory, uh, Goliath of famous story, David and Goliath, he was a Philistine. So we've got the Philistines, we've got Manoah, and we've got Mrs. Manoah, three characters in our account here. And here comes our fourth character in verse three. It says, the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. So the angel of the Lord appears to Mrs. Manoah. Now just File that in the back of your brain, because we're going to see more of this mysterious, who is this, the angel of the Lord? Anytime in the Old Testament that you see someone referred to as the angel of the Lord, little lights should, if we have a CT scan of your brain, little lights should start to go off and make you just go, hmm, what what does that mean? So the angel of the Lord comes to Mrs. Manoah, and we find out that she's barren, but she'll conceive and she'll bear a son. And you know, during this time, being barren was uh, actually, it was pretty shameful Um, not having children was a great shame for a woman. Having children was very important to women of this time, and Mrs. Manoah being barren would have made her feel low, uh, would have made her feel shameful. It would have actually, in that culture, it would have made her a less valuable member of society if a woman is barren. There was a serious stigma um, during that time around women who couldn't bear children. children. And it, it sounds terrible to say that today, like we don't hold that same view today necessarily, but that's just the reality of the culture that was during that time. Women barren, not having children, they were viewed as shameful and and on the lower totem pole than others. But here's the thing about God is that he just loves to use members of society who are deemed low or useless. He loves to use them to show his might. He loves to take those whom culture deems not worthy and and use them to great effect. You know, in the Bible, women being barren isn't a wild thing. I've got a few other women in the Bible here for you who are also were barren. We've got Rebecca. Uh, she was married to Isaac. She was barren, and she eventually gave birth to Jacob and Esau. Uh, we've got Rachel, who was married to Jacob. She was barren, and she eventually had Joseph and Benjamin. You've got Hannah, who was married to Elkanah. She was barren, and she gave birth to the prophet Samuel. Or in the New Testament, when we have Elizabeth, She was barren and she gave birth to a boy whom Jesus called the greatest man born of a woman, John the Baptist. God loves to use the low and shame to show his might. Look what the angel of the Lord says to Mrs. Manoah. Start in verse 3 again, chapter 13. It says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. 
No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So the angel of the Lord tells Mrs. Manoah, she's going to have a child, and he's going to be called by God to be a Nazarite for life. Now, what is a Nazarite, you might be thinking? Well, a Nazarite is one who voluntarily takes a vow to the Lord for a set period of time. The term Nazarite means to be consecrated or or to be set apart. Uh, In Numbers chapter 6, actually, it outlines what it looks like to take a Nazarite vow. And there's four main things that you do when you take a Nazarite vow. The first is you abstain from all wine and anything made from grapes. The second is you allow the hair on your head to grow. You don't cut your hair. The third thing is you make sure you don't become ritually impure by touching a dead body. And the fourth thing is at the end of all this, at the end of your Nazarite vow that you've chosen to take, you go to the temple, you offer a sacrifice of a lamb as a burnt offering, an ewe as a sin offering, and a ram as a peace offering. And then you actually also cut your hair after this time and put it on the altar and it all gets burned up and you offer it with your offering. And so normally, a a Nazarite vow would just be for a set period of time, like a month, a hundred days. There's varying arguments of how long. But it was just a temporary thing that you did um, to dedicate yourself to the Lord. You say, for the next 30 days, I'm going to set myself apart. I'm going to consecrate myself. I'm going to dedicate myself to the Lord. And I'm going to take this time and focus on the Lord. But like we just read, this call from the angel of the Lord was a little bit different for this baby that Mrs. Manoah was going to have. God had placed a special call on this baby's life to be a Nazarite for life, not just for a moment in time, but for his whole life, and even more than that, starting in the womb. The baby was to be a Nazarite from the womb. So Mrs. Manoah also had to abstain from wine and remain ritually pure. And what shall this baby do? Look at the end of verse 5. It says, He shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now, a bit of a buzzkill, isn't it? I just got us all set up thinking this might be our final redeemer. We're on the lookout for the ultimate redeemer. And here it seems to imply that he'll just begin to save Israel. He won't finish it, but he'll begin. But, I mean, we can work with that. Maybe the words are just a little messed up. We can work with it. We can work with it. He's obviously got a special call from God. He'll begin to save Israel. Maybe this is still the redeemer we need. Maybe, maybe. Let's look at verse 6. It says, Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb until the day of his death. So husbands, how would you like this? Your wife comes and runs up to you and says, Honey, honey, a man just came to me and he said, I'm going to conceive and bear a son. He what? Pardon me, ma'am? What did he look like? I want to know who this, oh, I don't know, but he was very beautiful. He was awesome. He looked like an angel. And I'm sure in that moment, man, Manoah was fired up. He'd love to have a chat with whoever this mystery person is that's talking to his wife. But, you know, big respect for these two parents. Big respect for these two parents. Because, first of all, let's look at what happens here. An angel comes to Mrs. Manoah and makes these big promises to her. 
He says, you know, even though you're barren, ah, it's okay, you're going to have a child. And you know what? You need to consecrate yourself too. You need to almost take this Nazarite vow. And you know what? When this baby gets born, he's going to begin to save Israel from these oppressors who've been a thorn in the side of Israel for years and years. And what does she do? This just seems crazy, right? When you stop and think about it, you're like, come on. What does she do? She runs to her husband, and she repeats all this as a matter of fact. She says, let's go. We got some work to do, buddy. The simple faith and trust that Mrs. Manoah has in the Lord. And look at Manoah. He's hearing all this from his wife, and he's probably just fired up, right? Like, imagine if your wife came to you and told you, you'd get fired up. You're like, what are you doing? Some guy's telling you that you're going to get pregnant, and, and you're hearing, he's hearing these words from his wife, and she sounds crazy, right? She just sounds crazy. But what's the first thing that Manoah does? He doesn't brush her aside. He goes to the Lord in prayer. Verse 8, then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. Great work, Manoah. Great work by Manoah. Great work by Mrs. Manoah. The first thing you should be doing when things don't seem to make sense uh, and are confusing is to go to the one who created it all. Go to the Lord in prayer and ask him. Just ask him. Ask the Lord for clarity and vision and direction. And that's exactly what Manoah does. He asks two questions of the Lord. The first question he asks is, he, asks, he says, let this man of God come again to us. Second thing he asks is, he says, teach us what we're to do with this child when he's born. Man, what great godly parents. Full of faith in the Lord, full of trust that what, the God, that what God says is going to happen. And even more than that, Manoah's prayer, he says, teach us what to do with the child. You know, this child is obviously a blessing from God, and we don't want to screw it up, God, so teach us. We need your help to teach us what to do with this baby once he's born. Two things that Manoah prays for. He says, come to us, and he says, teach us what to do. And I love this next part because we're going to get to see that Manoah has some questions but he doesn't get any answers. Let's look at verse 9, chapter 13. It says, And God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So God listened to the voice of Manoah, but he didn't play by Manoah's rules. Instead of coming to them together, like Manoah asks, the angel of the Lord came to Mrs. Manoah again, this time sitting in the field. Now, just a side note, doesn't have much to do with anything, but just, what do you think Mrs. Manoah was doing in the field? I don't know, but I could speculate this, that, that Mrs. Manoah was sitting in the field further, further looking to, vote, to devote herself to the Lord, further looking to spend time with the Lord, further looking to spend time in prayer with the Lord, spending time watching and listening for the Lord. I, but I digress, just speculation. Just something to think about. Look at verse 10. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And man, I bet Manoah's eyes just roll again. 
oh great, here's this guy again coming to my wife without me around. What is this guy up to? So he gets up and chases after her, and he says to the one who came to his wife, he says, are you the one who came to my wife? And he responds, I am. Hmm. Interesting. You don't see that very often in the Bible. I am. Friends, my Jesus. Jesus senses are tingling a little bit. Look at verse 12. Manoah said, now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? And Manoah has one more question. What is the child's manner of life and what's his mission? And the angel of the Lord responds in verse 13 and 14. The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. So Manoah's batting no for three on his questions, it looks like. <laughs> He's swinging for the fences, but he ain't getting any hits. You know, rather than answer any of Manoah's questions, the angel of the Lord just repeats what he told Manoah's wife. Consecrate yourself and the rest will follow. And isn't that the truth? I like to think Manoah's getting a little bit frustrated here because he wants answers. He's, tell me what to do with this child. Tell me what the future is going to look like for this child. And the angel of the Lord simply responds saying, set yourself apart from the world, do as I tell you, and trust me. And man, isn't this so much like me? Because that's just like me. I, I ask God questions. I say, I say God, tell me what's going to happen uh, next week. Tell me what's going to happen in the future, Lord. What will my future look like? Tell me I need a 12-step plan here for the next 12 days. But the Lord just simply wants me to dedicate myself to him, to do what he says, and to trust that he'll take care of it. You know, the Lord doesn't need you and me know the future. He simply needs us to dedicate ourselves to him and to be obedient. Look at verse 15. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. Manoah, look here, he wants to show some Middle Eastern hospitality, share some food with the angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord says, no, no, I won't eat, but you can prepare a burnt offering to the Lord. Now, this is very odd, friends. This is very odd. This should make, if we did a CT scan of your brain, your brain should be lit up. Your alarm bell should be going on off because this doesn't make any sense. In the book of Leviticus, we know that Israelites are given fairly specific rules on, on ways to offer burnt offerings, and they do it at certain times. You don't offer a burnt offering in the middle of a field on a rock in front of a, a random man of God. Unless this man of God, unless this angel of the Lord is more than just any old angel. You see, the writer of Judges knows that we know these rules around offering burnt offerings. And that's why we get this little sidebar from him that says, Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. Friends, this isn't any old angel. This is the angel of the Lord. This is Jesus Christ himself. 
This is the second member of our triune God, Jesus. Many times in the Old Testament, we see instances and appearances of Jesus that we call Christophanies. You know, it all, it all makes sense now, doesn't it? The past few uh, verses in chapter 13, they, they've all of a sudden all come together. The alarm bells have been going off, and what do you know? There was a fire. The angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord responds saying, I am. The angel of the Lord allows a man to worship him or offer a burnt offering in front of him, this is a clear sign that this is more than just any old angel. This is Jesus Christ himself. And look at verse 17 to 20, which further cements that this angel is Jesus. Verse 17, And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering, and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching, and when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. Jesus goes up the fire of the offering to heaven, and this is when it all clicks for the two of them. They think that they have seen God. Look at verse 21. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, and Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. And Manoah just starts freaking out. He just starts losing his mind because he thinks that we've just seen God. He's got got memories of Exodus 33 going through his head that says, You cannot see my face. For no man shall see my face and live. And Manoah just starts losing his mind. He just starts flipping out. We are going to die. We have seen God. But good old faithful, calm, cool and collected Mrs. Manoah. This lady is the definition of calm, cool and collected. A true follower of God. Look at what she says to her husband in verse 23. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. This is Manoah, so good. Chill out, Manoah. Just take a chill pill, buddy. Relax. Remember the things that God has done for you and the hope that he has planned for you. You think he would just bring you this far, make all these promises and then just kill you? What are you thinking, Manoah? You've forgotten everything that he's just said to us already. Don't fall into the trap of our ancestors who forgot all the good that God has done for us. Remember, Manoah, don't forget. Remember. Look at verse 24. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtil. And so here's our final character. His name comes out, Samson. Samson was born. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And look at this part again. It says, the spirit of the Lord began to stir him. You know, throughout the next few chapters of Samson, uh, we've always been taught that it was Samson's long hair that that gives him his great strength. We, 
And, and even Samson believes that himself, we'll see later in the book of Judges. But in Sunday school, we've always been taught it's his long hair. It's his long hair that gives him his strength. But here we get a little bit of insight into what the real source is of his strength. It's the Spirit of the Lord. We all know the story of Samson that we're going to see in the next few weeks. A great story, great Sunday school story. Captain America of Israel. Strong, muscular, long flowing Fabio hair. Just the sign of a peak physical man. Samson is the man. Except that he isn't. I love what the Bible Project calls Samson. This is what the Bible Project calls Samson. A violent, sex-crazed maniac with absolutely no conflict resolution skills who dies in blood and glory, getting vengeance on his enemies. That ain't quite the same Sunday school Bible story we've all been hearing. And Samson has so much potential here in chapter 13. He has a special calling on his life from the Lord. He has the spirit of the Lord beginning to stir him. He's taken a Nazarite vow from the womb, and he's set apart from the Lord. And yet, when we read through the next few chapters here in the coming weeks, we're going to see repeated failures and falling into sin. Friends, I'm sorry to say, Samson is not the hoped-for redeemer like he seems to be set up for in chapter 13. In fact, as we read through Judges, though all of Judges, it can be disheartening, right? Because if we're coming in this expecting to see redeemers, um, it can be frustrating seeing the people of Israel time and time again fall into the same cycle. Sin, oppression, repentance, deliverance, wash, rinse, repeat. And it just doesn't make sense how these people can keep forgetting the goodness of God, right? The promises of God, the constant deliverance from their oppressors, We look at the book of Judges and we just shake our heads. But friends, today isn't so different. Do you think the wash, rinse, repeat cycle doesn't continue all the way up through 2021? Well, I've got some news for you. We're not so much different from the people of Israel 3,000 years ago. But there is one. There is one big difference. Just one big difference. One big difference between us and the people of Israel from 3,000 years ago. And that's our fourth character that we just heard about in Samson's birth. It's the angel of the Lord. See, rather than us constantly needing to be on the lookout for the coming Messiah, we know that the Messiah has come. And we get a glimpse of that final Savior, the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ. I'm going to spoil something for you. If you haven't read the Bible yet, if maybe this is your first time tuning in, you don't know anything about the Bible, And you've heard that we're looking for a redeemer. We're looking for uh, a a hope savior to come. Well, I'm going to spoil something for you. That hope savior has come, friends. Our hope for a redeemer to save God's people has come, and his name is Jesus. The same Jesus that was with God hovering over the waters at the beginning of creation, the same Jesus uh, who was in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, same Jesus who was born in a manger, a miracle birth, not too far off with how Samson was born. The same Jesus who was raised up by the power of the Holy Spirit, and rather than fail the tests that came to him, like the previous 11 judges that we've looked at and how Samson's going to eventually fail, 
The difference is that Jesus passed these tests and he didn't fall into sin. And then he died. But unlike those before him who died, he was raised again three days later, overcoming the power of death. His blood was shed as a sacrifice for you and for me, and God accepted that pure sacrifice so that you and I may live. So friends, I want to encourage you today with just a final few application points that will come up on your screen. Number one, I'm going to start making bracelets of this. WWMMMD. Does that roll off the tongue? WWMMMD. I'm going to start handing out bracelets. Does that sound like a good idea? What would Mr. and Mrs. Manoa do? Two things I love about these two. The first, Mrs. Manoa's blind faith in the Lord. Trust that what he says he is going to do, and it will happen. And even when it seems as insane as telling you that you're going to have a child, even though you're barren, trust in the Lord that he will do as he says. And the second thing is ask questions of the Lord. Ask as many questions as possible like Manoah did. Ask and ask and keep coming to the Lord in prayer. But at the end of the day, dedicate yourself to him, obey him, and trust him. That's number one, WWMMMD. Remember that. Rolls off the tongue. The second thing, always be on the lookout for Jesus because, friends, you just never know when he's going to show himself. Could be in a field, could be walking down the street, could be right now here at church together. Friends, Jesus wants to show himself to you, so be on the lookout because you might miss him, and you don't want to miss Jesus. He'll come when you least expect him. And the third thing is your Messiah has already come. You don't need to be looking uh, for the coming Redeemer. You don't need to be looking for the coming Messiah to save you. He's already come. He's sitting here right now at the right hand of God, alive today. He's come, and you are saved. You don't need to be looking for your Redeemer to come, but what you do need to be looking for is for your Redeemer to come again. And friends, he's coming soon. Your Redeemer is coming again soon. Keep your lamps trimmed. Stay alert. He's come once already. He's died on the cross for you and was raised again. He is our one true redeemer. We don't need to be looking ahead for a redeemer to come and save us. We've been saved. But be looking ahead for him to come again because he's coming again soon, friends. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, Jesus hasn't come for me. I don't know who Jesus is. Well, maybe he's showing himself to you today, right now. Point number two, always be on the lookout for Jesus. And friends, Jesus is here right now. Now's the time to look for him because he's here right this second. And maybe you want to know Jesus. All you have to do, the Bible says, is confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Acknowledge that you have sin. Turn from that sin. Ask Jesus into your heart to save you and you will be saved. I promise you that. God promises you that. Trust him, believe in him, just obey. So let's pray. We're going to pray, and then uh, the worship team is going to come up and lead us in one more song to finish. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for your son, Jesus. And Lord, I just want to pray if there's anyone out there uh, right now that doesn't know you, that is looking for you, Lord, that you would show yourself to them, Lord, that right now you would show yourself to them, Lord.
And if there's people out there who've seen you this morning, Father, that want to know you, that they would just pray this prayer with me today. Lord, I believe in you. I confess in my heart that you are Lord. I confess with my mouth that you are Lord, and I believe in my heart that God raised you from the dead, Jesus. Jesus, I repent from my sins. I'm a sinner, and I need your cleansing blood to wash me white as snow. So, Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you that you always hear us, Lord. Thank you that you don't always give us what we ask for, Father, uh, but we still trust you, Father. We do our best to obey you, Lord. So just help us in that this week. And just thank you for this time together.